It sounds so simple. Sit quietly, close your eyes, empty your mind and focus on your breath and only your breath. And yet anyone who's ever tried it knows from experience how impossibly challenging it can be, even for a few minutes. An ancient practice that originated in India, meditation was widespread in Eastern cultures for millennia before finding a meaningful foothold in Western Europe and North America in the last half century. As recently as a decade ago, most of Western culture dismissed meditation as a sort of touchy-feely pursuit with no real value. Thanks in large part, however, to the rise of meditation apps like Headspace, that attitude has dramatically shifted from one of skepticism to one of curiosity and perhaps one of heading towards broad acceptance. And just in time, too, as the pandemic and lockdown revealed for all of us the perilous state of the mental health system and the importance of emotional self-care. Our guest today is Leslie Witt, the Chief Product and Design Officer at Headspace. With an educational background in architecture and nearly a decade at the acclaimed design studio IDEO, Leslie brings a unique perspective about the role design can play in shaping our emotional lives in both the physical and virtual worlds. In this episode, we'll touch on the importance of preventative mental health, as well as the challenges of taking care of yourself when you're also struggling with the demands of being a business executive, a mom, and of course, your own full person. This is Reconsidering, a podcast about life, and how to live it better. I'm Bob Baxley. I'm Meredith Black. I'm Aaron Walter. And we'll be right back with Leslie Witt. This series is brought to you by Indeed Design, a resource for designers and researchers and all UX professionals who do design work that matters. If you're thinking about working in UX or you wanna take the next step in your UX career, Indeed Design can help. Visit indeed.design for tips and tools for people of all levels. You'll find articles to help you refresh your portfolio, build more accessible products, improve team culture, and so much more. That's all at indeed.design. My name is Leslie Witt. I'm the Chief Product and Design Officer at Headspace Health, where we are building the world's most comprehensive, accessible, and effective mental health services. You ready to play? Yeah. Here we go. Ocean or mountains? Ocean. Home or office? Home. Quiet night at home or wild night on the town? Wild night at home. (laughs) Long shot or sure thing? Long shot. By the book or against the rules? I'm like the naughty librarian. I I feel like I'm between all of your answers. I, I, I think I'm a rule breaker at my heart. Guided or unguided? Guided. Mentor or coach? Coach. Palace or cathedral? Cathedral. Museum or concert? Museum. Time or money? Time. And last, solo or symphony? Oh, I'm symphony all the way. Fun fact, when I read Pillars of the Earth, which is a Ken Follett book about cathedrals, I was a little young for reading it. It was like 12, 13. And that's 100% why I decided to become an architect. I had very grandiose visions of getting to build my own cathedral. Now doing it in pixels. Yeah, maybe we start with the architecture piece, because I think that's a fascinating part of your background. Could you talk a little bit about the concept of architecture and how that's creating a physical space for living? 
And then maybe how you relate that to your work now at Headspace? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I trained as an architect and practiced as an architect. And I would say that in the best of cases, what that practice is, is truly understanding the human condition, both at the individual, at the community, and at the even cultural level, and designing the built fabric in such a way to improve experience and outcomes. What I loved about it was the combination of artistic boldness with engineering might and that necessity of thinking of the big picture, imagining kind of a a pragmatic utopia, and then, you know, navigating everything down to the screw head in terms of the complexity of actually realizing that vision. And I'd say that that dimension of, you know, core human understanding, bold possibility, and then the, you know, pragmatic nitty gritty navigation of multiple scales of complexity and systemic constraint are, you know, very much part of what I do to this day, even though I no longer do it in the space of actually built things and environments. Leslie, inherent in the pursuit of architecture is this desire to shape life, to shape the way that you live life, to shape behavior, behaviors of others. How do you think that that philosophy of of architecture plays out in your life today? Yeah, I fundamentally think that the role of the designer is to understand all of the things that inform our norms and habits and to embrace those that have positive feedback loops and to fundamentally challenge the ones that actually lead to worse outcomes. And again, kind of both at that individual level and at the societal level. And, you know, in my work of right now, I'm focused on mental health. Prior to that, I was focused on financial health. And both of those milieus are ones that are fundamental to the human condition. And in some ways you could say broken in current state. They're wrapped up in stigma. They're wrapped up in fear, uncertainty, and doubt. And they're both highly complicated and areas where there are so many things and practices, tools and services that can help people achieve better outcomes. And so I'd say like that gestalt of the architect who wants to design a better system that is both kind of heuristically beautiful, but also incredibly utilitarian and effective is very much part and parcel of what I do. So speaking of mental health, how big of an issue is mental health for companies and managing a productive workforce? Gaping. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, I would say that, you know, in this like blast radius not contained to the workplace, the mental health crisis existed far before COVID. But what COVID really did for us in a positive way was open up the conversation, shine a light on a topic that is fundamental to the human condition and yet has been wrapped up in uncertainty and obscurity and stigma and suddenly put it on main stage in a way that could no longer be ignored. On the negative side, it also exacerbated a number of factors that increased mentally ill health, right? Deep social isolation and loneliness, heightened senses of anxiety and stress. And this really crossed all age demographies. And so employers who have very much, you know, seen themselves and are seen by their employees in the role of needing to care about their health writ large 
in terms of its relation to productivity and almost to the, you know, kind of social contract that exists between employees and employers, we're very clearly demonstrating, I need help. And the expectations of help, you know, we've done some surveys in this zone, like over 80% of employees expect at this point in time that an employer will proactively be engaged in helping them manage their mental health. And beyond that, they really expect that that net is cast to their family. And so when you think about the idea of a worker being able to show up, you know, on your screen, at your door, in your space, for your service, and bring their energy and productivity, mental health is one of the key pillars to actually facilitating that happening. 80%, that's an insane number. It's really high. Yeah. Why do you think people expect their employers to help with mental health? Well, I think if you took out the term mental and you just said like 80% of employees expect employers to be proactively engaged in their health, it would actually not be all that shocking, right? Like we have a set of norms around health benefits being extended through the workplace for better or worse, right? Like that's a whole other topic where we could get into talking about universal health care. And, and, and I am right now in that way referring to the United States. But there's a dimension here where increasingly, and I think in a very positive way, that divide of mental health, not just being health, is fundamentally blurred. I wouldn't even say blurring. And, you know, furthermore, people see work both as a place of solution, but also as a place of cause. And so when you look at, you know, what is the primary cause of your mental distress, of your anxiety, of your sleeplessness, work gets cited as the primary cause in over 30% of all cases. And so it's this kind of double-edged sword where people are seeing that this is a place where I should be supported. It's also the place that is in many cases the worst criminal of the things that are causing me to be in this situation. And so I'm looking back at it for its responsibility to help me take care. Yeah, that's interesting that you say that because, you know, we've had conversations in the past about, you know, chronic illness and invisible illness and mental health being one of those things that is an invisible illness. But at the same time, like, why can't we just call it health? Why does it have to be called mental health? And why do we have to break that down? And why is there this barrier between the two? And I think in some way we're starting to get there, right? But like, even look at people who offer mental health days. Why does there need to be a description on that? Yeah, why the qualifier? Why the qualifier? I mean, I think at this moment in time, we're still normalizing it. And so there's a value to calling it out in a way to say there's no shame. I think you can almost graduate to a place where that naming and titling is no longer necessary, but we're not, we're not there yet. We're on the path. And, you know, I have shared with you all in the past, I have twin 11 year olds. And I would say that one, there's the pending fear of adolescence. And, you know, we know adolescence is a time of intense mental health challenges and needs. But what gives me a lot of hope for the future is the extent to which the conversation for them and their peers is completely normalized about talking about their mental health and their issues, knowing that there are tools and services that they can seek out help through, that it's actually like a set of treatable conditions, that there are practices that they can engage in that get them to a mentally well place. And they know that in this very like deep way that bears no resemblance 
to my upbringing 30 years ago. And I would imagine most of yours and your listeners. Yeah. I mean, I think it goes to the fact that they were kind of born into this environment where it was acceptable to talk about this and to work through this. And there already were tools and frameworks in place. Whereas I think when we were growing up, it was just kind of like starting to talk about it a little bit, but it was still pretty hush hush and something that you don't really express outward. It's something that's like a family matter. Yeah. And that is still very much the reality for many places. You know, I think it's to a certain extent, the future is here. It's just not evenly distributed. They're experiencing what a Bay Area social emotional learning curriculum that looks at whole personhood is like in such a way that it leads to those outcomes. And as a company, our mission is to make sure that independent of where you live, independent of, you know, what background you're born into, that that's a knowledge and a visceral understanding and a set of tools and services that's available for everyone. So Leslie, earlier in the conversation, you used the phrase social contract. You talk about the social contract between the employees and the employers. And then you were just talking about your twins and how they have gotten very comfortable talking about mental health challenges with their friends. It seems to me that we're still using the lens, though, that it's an individual responsibility and we're not really seeing it as a larger social issue. And you know, some of the other folks we've talked to and the other books we've read and stuff talked about some of these things like burnout. This is not something you're going to solve through individual initiative. This is a large scale social system issue. And I'm wondering how you as an individual, how you as a, a mom who cares, obviously cares about your children. And then like as someone who leads a big team in a very forward thinking company, where you see things are on the shift socially, are we really grokking this issue at a almost societal level? In some places, right? You know, I think that you're hearing the Surgeon General issue an overall statement on the teen mental health crisis. We're seeing new partners arise. Like we have an incredible relationship with LA County who decided to purchase access to Headspace for all residents of LA. And through that, we've started to forge deeper relationships with LAUSD to really look at ways that we embed wellness into the curriculum and into the habits and norms and support infrastructure for educators. And those are just kind of like cherry picking a few things. And so I'd say like that recognition that there's an institutionalization that needs to happen in order to shift and change the environment where there's less burden on the individual. And there's also less of a sense of tagging problems at the individual level, even though that's where we're able to notice that they manifest. It's a both and, right? Like at the same time, we and I am very deeply committed to equipping people with the tools that they can use in order to have their locus of control be something that ends them personally in a better place while we work on the institutions and the infrastructure. Could we pull apart maybe a little bit of the idea of mindfulness and meditation? Because there's certain components of it that have religious affiliation. But really at this point, it's kind of evolved into a different space of, you know, anyone can meditate regardless of your background. Though people may have certain fears and anxieties of like, I can't sit still for 10 minutes. How do I do this? So when you talk about the tools that help, you know, there's meditation, there's things around sleep 
and there's other mental services. Like, what does that look like? The suite of tools, like in an ideal world, that people would be tapping into. Maybe I'll start with kind of talking about our suite of tools. So Headspace came to life as a meditation platform, very much focused on you know taking some of the attributes of meditation that have the least religious grounding, but are deeply both scientifically proven and kind of part of a core pedagogy and making them accessible to all. And that doesn't mean just publishing them in a tech platform. It has everything to do with like our brand look and feel. How could we make this something that was inviting, that felt less scary, that felt less for a technical term, woo-woo, where I don't need to be someone who, you know, has a space to sit cross-legged and commune, I can be, you know, out on the go, I've got three minutes, and I just need to be able to breathe. And so, you know, we started there, and that's fundamentally still a large part of our kind of self-serve core. And then bit by bit, we expanded out into other dimensions of kind of mindful and healthy practices, mindful movement, being able to take a walk, for those who are able to do so, a lot of focus around better sleep, a fair amount of what we refer to as our lean back content, which is for those who may not be ready to step into trying to establish a practice, it introduces them to some of the norms of paying attention, of learning how to control the breath and de-stress and paves the way we've been able to see, you know, both through qualitative and anecdote, as well as through more quant and scientific analysis, that it kind of paves the way to step into a deeper practice. So there's, there's this suite of self-serve tools, and that's really what Headspace was up until a year ago. But I joined Headspace two years ago in order to broaden that suite of services. And what we had realized, very much courtesy of our own members, was that that self-service suite of tools isn't enough always, right? And if someone is in an acute state of anxiety, if they are having you know, a major depressive episode, they need more support. And so you know, our suite of tools now through our acquisition of Ginger very much include being able to step up into human services, to be able to have a coach who's on demand and expertly trained if you actually need more, we have therapists. If you need more than that, we have psychiatry. And where it's warranted, we have access to pharmaceuticals. But we've been able to see that for a large portion of clinical need, you were able to meet that through therapeutic human services and help to kind of bring you into a place where those very same self-serve tools can actually help you establish healthy practices. There's a broader suite as you get into more specific need cases, substance use disorder, you know, when you're thinking about adolescence and children and ADHD, and, you know, the list goes on. But I think knowing that there are pathways, protocols, services, tools that can help you kind of no matter where you are on that spectrum and shorten the distance of time when you might find yourself through internal or external realities facing a heavier crisis, that there's an ability to kind of step up and into broader levels of support. So it sounds like you've done some research where you've encountered people that have resistance, you know, or just aren't warming up to the quote unquote technical woo-woo nature of meditation. <laughs> yeah, I think what it ends up being is like that, oh, this isn't for me. 
So some of our listeners are probably a little on the fence about these things as well. And so I'm just wondering, you know, if you see patterns of resistance, are there typical mental attitudes that people are able to break through some ways that they can give themselves permission to engage with not just meditation, but therapy and maybe some other services that have been stigmatized? Yeah, I'll tackle a few. On the meditation side of the house, there's the common friend and foe, which is I don't have time. Like, I wish I had time, but I don't have time. And so we focus on bringing down that barrier and have a lot of proof around the value of just kind of a three minutes a day type of approach for 10 days. And you'll find that your stress is reduced by like 30%. And, you know, being able to showcase that this is something that you can fit in while you're in line to pick up your kids at the elementary school, that you don't have to kind of reserve that. So there's these kind of utility barriers that exist around time and discipline that are more easy to productize. There's broader barriers around kind of not seeing oneself. And that's particularly true for underrepresented communities, for BIPOC communities, for places where they may not have seen a meditation teacher or a therapist that looks like themselves. And there's a lot of research into the value of what's called concordance, like where you're looking to find this rapport doesn't have to be identity driven, but often those kind of identity attributes signal that someone will have empathy and understand your context and where you're starting from. And so we've made a big push within the headspace kind of teacher portfolio to bring an increasingly diverse set of teachers who bring themselves and their pedagogy. And then quite honestly, the fact that they have a broader affiliation from our starting point, which was with an incredible founder who happened to be a British white cisgendered male. And so we're broadening that aperture and finding very much that it allows us to have more and more people of diverse backgrounds and perspectives come in and feel like this was something actually made for them. And then the same, quite honestly, holds true as you ramp into human-based services around what training have people received in terms of actually having cultural sensitivity, and then what truly is that diversity and inclusive profile that allows the goal of being inclusive to actually manifest in health equity. How do people get started with meditating like, and focusing on their mental well-being? Like... I mean, if I was just like, okay, I'm stressed out. I've got a million things on my plate. I've got, you know, work, life, family. Like, where would I even begin to start? Yeah. I mean, I'm not going to say download Headspace, um, <laughs> but, uh, you know, honestly, I'd say, you know, f- for me, learning how to breathe is huge. I think it's the first rung of meditating where you kind of realize, like, oh, okay, wait a second. Like, I'm sensing the somatic things that happen when there's ramped anxiety or stress. And I actually like know how to take less than a minute to calm my system down. And now I've allowed my neurochemicals to take a break and I've allowed my heart rate to decrease. And so I'm in a better state to assess what I can do next and to have now more wherewithal to realize that there's optionality. The other thing is, you know, I, you guys can see it, no one on the radio can, but piano and gardening are what I call my own active meditation. And so I'd say like not forcing yourself, if closing your eyes and listening, which I do think has intense value, 
aren't yet your thing, what are the activities that take you to a mindful place where you are able to, you know, kind of disconnect from the day-to-day stress, where you're able to be fully present, where you feel those attributes that for whatever you identify happy to be that like speak to that. And I would say that those mindful activities, creating capacity and time for them, and then learning how to breathe would be my recommendation on how to take a few steps onto the meditation journey. What was your practice before you joined Headspace? You were at Intuit, you know, and then before that IDEO, there might be some other stuff in there, but like you've been operating at a very senior demanding level of the design world for a long time. Did you have a practice when you were into it or was it something that you developed as you went to Headspace? Yeah, I really didn't. I have always created time for myself. And that's hard to say when you are a senior executive and a mom of twins and trend toward packing a schedule even beyond that. But I have, you know, the benefit of a very obvious circadian rhythm which is that I pop up, no alarm needed at five o'clock in the morning. And I'm, I'm like full active. And the benefit of that is that no one else is. (laughs) And so (laughs) I've always been able to take that reality because my energy curve plummets off a cliff as we hit the evening and establish norms where I have some extra hours in the morning and I, have always been protective of not giving all of them to work. And, you know, step outside, do a little gardening. I do my daily crossword and I'm part of the spelling bee beehive community, Uh, you know, kind of fit in my word games. And I think that that dimension of recognition of energy pattern and, you know, investment in what can feel like indulgent time for self had been part of my arsenal. And as I started to consider leaving into it and became increasingly interested in tackling, you know, the wicked problem, which is the mental health crisis, I discovered more and more about what these tools are and started to find that they brought me increased peace and that they were something that I could also bring into my family life with my kids. I had my entire family do this really thoughtful legacy meditation at Christmas and, you know, have found that it's expanded the type of conversations that we can have. And we're not perfect. We still like have peaks and valleys, but it's created a set of practices that we can share and build upon. Okay. I got to ask, what is the legacy meditation? Oh my God. It's so good. It's called human layers. It's the first bonus on our podcast, the Longtime Academy, which is really helping you reframe kind of a notion of time and time's passage. And it has you walk through a, a lens of kind of thinking about people that you care about into the past and then walk into the future. And it like radically expands your notion of legacy and care. And I've now done it like four times and I end up crying every time, but they're happy tears. And so highly recommend it. Human layers is what it's called. This is an interesting topic because so far in the conversation, as we framed meditation and mindfulness, it's really about taking care of yourself. That's the exact phrase that we've used here, but there's opportunity as we get deeper into a meditation practice and mindfulness that it connects us to others. Could you talk to that a little bit? And like, what are the benefits? How do we do that? 
Yeah, absolutely. I mean, there's a lot of scientific proof, some of which we've done on our own content, that a practice of meditation increases compassion. And I think that to use an overused analogy, it has a dimension of, you know, put on your own oxygen mask first. There's a dimension where self-care actually creates deeper capacity for you to care for others. And so I don't see those at loggers heads to each other kind of far from it, but that that dimension of kind of being present, I think often allows you to have self-empathy, which extends into broader empathy. And you start from a place of zeal to understand and forgiveness. That's not unique to meditators, right? That's at the core of many world religions, I think certainly in philosophy, if not in practice and is a basis for us thinking about how do we all coexist here, not just peacefully, but in such a way that we help each other. So I'm going to echo Aaron's thing. I'm sort of fascinated by this legacy meditation, and thanks for describing it a little bit. It makes me think about a couple of guests we had earlier in the season. So Dan Pink talking about regret, Kieran Setia talking about his book, Life is Hard. And in the interview with Kieran, he talked about hope. So if we look at these two emotions of regret and hope. You know, it seems to me that that's a way of human beings sort of moving through time, regret moving backwards and hope moving forwards. And I think we sort of do it spontaneously. And what's really struck me about the legacy meditation, as you described it, is like taking a conscious moment to time travel, you know, and like really trying to play things forwards and backwards so that you're conscious about how you want things to evolve and change over time. It's kind of interesting because meditation, I think about it as being present in the here and the now. In the moment. I was going to say, yeah. I mean, that was, that was a big part of why we made the Longtime Academy, because there is a dimension where you can lose sight, right? And I think that what we've largely found, all of us can relate to this, is that when you lose sight of the longer time or the broader picture, so much can focus on the importance of a moment and lose that it's relatively minuscule, which I think if you actually listen to the meditation teachings, that is at the core, but can easily invert as many things do. And that what we were trying to do and what I think this meditation achieves really well, but you know, kind of zoom out from the specifics is to allow you to imagine your core self now and then take that back through others into the past and then back through others into a future in which you will not be present. And it has an expansiveness where suddenly you decenter yourself, which I think is incredibly important. And it, when you come back to the present, you have this notion that the present matters, but it matters so much more in terms of its kind of ripple impact. And I think it rightfully kind of minimizes the exact importance of the here and now and kind of allows you to dream. Leslie, I wanted to dig in on sleep a little bit because this is something I use Headspace for almost nightly. I use it with my kids, my youngest son. We listen to, you know, the sleep cast and so forth. I also just want to say Rainy Day Antiques is, is I, I think it needs to be in MoMA. Like that's, that's a masterpiece. <laughs> I was going to say, I, you are I, I not alone it. on liking Rainy Day Antiques, Aaron. Oh my gosh, there's something really special about that. I could listen to it all day. 
But just to go back to the idea of self-care, and you talked a little bit about your circadian rhythm and recognizing that and using that as a way to sort of invest in yourself and find balance. Sleep management is just about as essential as it gets for just being your best self, whether that's your best self with your family, your friends, at your job, your career, thinking about what you want to do next. If you're operating on an empty battery, it's just almost impossible to be successful. How do you think about sleep management personally in the context of the work that you're doing and just what science is out there that might inform listeners? Yeah, I mean, I feel like you just gave our pitch. It's critical. It's one of those both causal and corollary measures that like a good night's sleep has so many positive bleed on effects, the opposite, the same, and it becomes self-fulfilling prophecy where, you know, especially if you're consistently receiving poor sleep, it has so many impacts across, you know, physical health, emotional health, work productivity, life productivity, life happiness, et cetera. And so, you know, we put a lot of focus there. And earlier today was having the pleasure of reviewing a sleep program that one of our behavioral scientists and our head UX designer are putting together to really, you know, provide more of a kind of guided flow through, you know, the science behind good sleep and how to apply that to yourself beyond the joy of our sleep cast. You know, when it comes to me personally, I'm on a sleep journey. For any of your listeners out there who might have the pleasure of being a 40-something perimenopausal woman, we're not renowned for our great sleep. (laughs) And I very much joined that club. I am absolutely champion at falling asleep. I am not champion at staying asleep. (laughs) And uh, so I'm always working on it. And despite the fact that I know that probably if I killed my nice glass of wine, and, you know, really put aside my screen, I still have some maladaptive behaviors. But like, I think sleep is one of those like like many attributes of core health, it's something that you're always having to kind of figure out what you need now. And I'm in that moment where I have to figure out how to navigate this whole hormonal mess, which is the joy of 10 years of perimenopause. (laughs) I'm just aggressively nodding over here. So I get all of it. (laughs) I want to ask this because I think it's important and I think you started highlighting this, but like, what are kind of the unique aspects of dealing with mental health and sleep as a woman? Is there something that makes this more challenging for women than men? Or do you have information or data of how women versus men kind of deal with this stuff differently? Well, I think here's where I would be treading into being Dr. Google, which is dangerous. But I (laughs) I would say that sleep problems are very common. We get indications that not just through use, but through some of our member census data that, you know, upwards of 40% of our member base suffer with sleep. I know we were talking earlier about the workplace. When we look at consumption behaviors across our different member types or like kind of spaces of origin, our employee members push that much higher in terms of consumption of sleep content. We know from HR leaders that sleep challenges are part of, you know, some of the top asks from their employees. And that really has no specific gender dimension. I do think there's good science out there that, you know, throughout childbearing years, throughout the post-childbearing years, and into, unfortunately, even beyond perimenopause into menopause, that there are hormonal norms for women 
that make it that much more challenging to get that recommended eight hours of good sleep each night. You put that at the core and then you add in all of the environmental dimensions that I think we know exist, but are worth mentioning, which is that in many households, the female partner is still doing a lion's share of the household and childcare tasks when they are also an equivalent daytime worker. And that that burden, those hours and that stress and that latent stress of being the default parent have to go somewhere. And the somewhere that they often go is into jeopardizing quality sleep. I was going to ask that next is, you know, the big conversation around caretakers, right? Like you always hear that the caretakers are the ones that are almost more stressed out or more exhausted or not sleeping because they are literally taking care of somebody else who needs the help, right? And by the way, I just want to add this, that we hear that very much from men as well. Like that is not limited. So I think like a lot of times we put an equivalency on, you know, caretaker equals female in a kind of default norming in our brains. And that's increasingly not true. And we find that like, hey, I need help dealing with the stress of being a caretaker is one of our top asks from our male members as well. That's what I was going to ask is like, what are the asks? Like, what are they asking for? Yeah. When they're asking, they are asking for help dealing with trauma. And that trauma can manifest as specific things like miscarriage and loss. It can manifest as cultural trauma and racial trauma. We hear a lot around wanting to have kind of tactical, deeper help with stress relief. Stress is huge. We hear a lot around help with breakups and sadness, like help me grok with sadness. And then within the stress landscape, you know, and this, we have a podcast that we brought out called the Sunday Scaries. And just two days ago, we launched with Spotify, the Sunday Scaries student edition, which is what is the kind of dread of the work week? And how do I confront some of these norms and habits around the way that I cycle through stress in my day-to-day life? And so, you know, kind of that is its whole deep tranche. But yeah, I'd say trauma, loss, sadness, stress are some of our biggest topics that surface in terms of areas that people want deeper help on. And nested within all of that is a desire for some level of community to know that I'm not the only one that is grappling with this challenge and to kind of feel that uprising of others as part of the support. You've talked about this issue through the lens of an executive and through a woman, like, but you also run a creative team. And, you know, I think those of us that are creative professionals know that we do our best work when we have a quiet mind, but I can't say society is encouraging or supporting us in the pursuit of a quiet mind particularly in the modern knowledge worker environment and sort of the always-on, hyper-collaborative, very extroverted style. I was also wondering if you have any unique insights or observations from your own you know, experiences running creative teams about how creative people in particular might want to think about or approach mindfulness, mental health, meditation, et cetera. Yeah. I think one of the biggest areas is to be able to hold your work separate from yourself. And that's important for all people, but I think it's particularly challenging for creative people where the passion for the idea 
feels incredibly personal where the attribute of how it's manifest be that in, you know, a brilliant piece of copy or in illustrative idea or in a particular new idea about how a user experience might unfold becomes really easy to conflate that thing with you personally. And in that way, to hold it so close to chest that others are damaging it when they provide feedback. And in that, not just damaging it, but damaging you. And that it means, you know, a success of an AB experiment can like cycle back and feel like it's fundamentally personal judgment. And so, you know, something I try to work on with my teams is to care, but to realize that the thing is separate from yourself and that you must make and shape ideas together, together with others within your organization, together with end members, and that being able to have that cleave allows far greater kind of psychological safety and space to quiet your mind. You know, it's easier said than done, right? You don't want to get to a place where suddenly like you have no personal vested interest, but it's an important practice to realize that this thing lives external to me and it bears imprint of my own, but it is not me. So Leslie, the way we like to close these shows is to engage a little bit of reverse mentoring. So if you could, and you're very adept at uh, meditation, so you'll be able to do this, but if you could close your eyes for a moment and try to bring forth in your head, 25 year old Leslie, see if you could imagine her and kind of picture her and then imagine that current mid forties, Leslie is sitting down with her. What advice would that younger Leslie have for you today? Oh, I was so ready to give younger Leslie some advice from where everybody <laughs> always <laughs> is. <laughs> yeah, but that's not All the right, question. Wow, that was a switcheroo. <laughs> All right. Younger Leslie would, I think fundamentally want me to know that intellectual integrity matters, that there's a deeper history and importance to what I'm doing that exists far beyond the annual plan and the operating model and whatever collaborative document I've just queued up to make a comment in and to insist that I preserve a grandiose image of impact 25-year-old Leslie sounds very wise. <laughs> she was quite arrogant, but, <laughs> um, you know, I think had a lot of wisdom in terms of the long game. I think her short game wasn't quite as good. Hmm. Why do you think it's so surprising and confusing when we flip that question around? Why are we so wedded to this idea that it's only the older people that have knowledge to share with the younger I was less thinking of it in that frame, but I do think that is a norm. More that with the benefit of hindsight, I can see what I wish I would have known then. I think it's harder to have that level of prescience around your current state with the things that manifest for you now might be blinding you. So I think to a certain extent, like I can see 25-year-old Leslie very, very clearly in a way that it's hard to be as visible in your present. Leslie, thank you so much for being on the show. Thank you so much for having me. Really appreciate it and enjoyed the conversation. 
So that was a great conversation with Leslie. Some really insightful stuff about her experience there at Headspace. Meredith, why don't we start with you? What were some of your key takeaways? You know, one of the things that I just keep thinking over and over that she kind of validated is that like there's just such a stigma around mental health. And, you know, the other day was Mental Health Awareness Day, which I don't think a lot of people maybe realized, but it was. And I think the thing that drove home for me is that Leslie and her work and what she's doing, especially, you know, as a designer, is she's making impact on other people's lives. And she's doing it in a productive way, and she's trying to help reduce the stigma of this, and so is Headspace, and so are you know other companies like that. And so I think for me, it was just really nice to have a conversation and get that out in the open, because it's something that we don't talk enough about in general. Yeah, I liked how they were helping on the mental health crisis issue, but perhaps more importantly, it's, you know, Headspace meditation sort of preventative mental health. You know, it seems like that was the bread and butter of kind of what they were doing. Yeah. I mean, I think, you know, what was really interesting is just three minutes of meditation a day. Three minutes a day for 10 days reduces stress by 30%. That's amazing. Yeah, that phenomenal. That's incredible. You know, and it's like if you could get that information out and just allow people the three minutes, because everybody feels like they don't have enough time in their day, right? But that three minutes, if you could show that that three minutes makes such an impact, imagine where we would be personally, but also in the workplace. That's the part that I find super interesting too. So obviously meditation, mindfulness helps with mental health generally, but from a workplace perspective, it also helps with performance. Like less stressed people make better decisions, less stressed people collaborate more effectively. Also the way that she talked about how meditation, we often think of it as like going into the self. But ultimately, like if you keep doing it, you kind of like break down the ego and you feel part of something bigger. And she talked about that legacy meditation, human layers is what it's called on Headspace. I can't wait to dive into that. But this idea of connecting yourself to one node in the vast expanse of humanity, the humanity that's present now, the humanity that is before you many years and the humanity that will come after you. You know, if you're running a company, having people that are humble, that reduce their ego, that are less stressed, you have a better work culture. You have a more effective, more productive company. Yeah. It's funny you're hammering in on the work thing here because she said something at the start of the interview that really stuck with me, which is that work is the primary cause of stress for people. Totally. And totally. that 80% of employees expect their employers to help with mental health. And we talk about the mental health crisis, but... It, it's a point I was trying to make there at the end of the interview. We treat it like it's an individual thing, like it's our fault individually. And, you know, we're living in incredibly chaotic times. The transition from us as humans and consumers to us as capitalist economic actors, we're not citizens, we're just consumers. The society considers us all just to be economic actors. And so people are like freaking out at, at work, you know, and they're freaking out in their day-to-day -day lives, which like they kind of should be. You know, if you look at everything that's happening with climate change and COVID and economic uncertainty and, you know, the state of democracy and everything else, it's surprising that more people aren't stressed. It's just unfortunate how we treat mental health like it's an individual failure instead of an indication that something has gone seriously wrong with how we live our lives and structure our lives at the social level, societal level. Well, and to even dive deeper into that, I still hate how we call it mental health. 
Like, I still hate how we have to define it out, right? Like, you go to the doctor and you're like, I have a stomach ache. You'll go tell everyone you've got a stomach ache and you got to go to the doctor. But how many people do you know are like, I got to go to the therapist. You know, like, I got to go take care of my brain. It's like, how do we reduce the stigma on this? And how do we get people to think of what's happening mentally is just as important as what's happening physically? And why do we have to define those out? Yeah, maybe there's something to it, how we keep calling it mental health. And it's actually emotional health. You know, it's like acknowledging that there's a a human part of my life as well. It's not just the physical reality of my body, but I have an emotional reality and emotional needs as a human being. And those are the things that aren't getting served. And so I need to make time to go deal with them. I need to go to a therapist in the same way I need to go to a gym, right? It's just how I keep myself healthy. Maybe sometimes when we use that phrase mental health, to me, it kind of centers too much on the brain, almost like the brain's an organ. Which in some cases it is. I mean, we start getting into schizophrenia and some things like that. that. That's what's going on. But I think when we colloquially use the phrase mental health, we're talking about people's emotional well-being. And we're expecting everyone to pull it together on their own. It's almost like if there was a massive hurricane blowing and we'd expect everybody to keep themselves dry. You know, it's like, no, we probably need to think about structuring things a little bit differently. Yeah. Well-being feels like the right phrase to me. That's most descriptive. Yeah. I also liked what Leslie had to say at the very end. She said, hold your work separate from yourself, which I think is super interesting because, so just speaking from my own experience, I've always just had a hard time. Like, I really like to work. I love being productive at work. I just, I like being productive. I am kind of like an ant in the bigger economy. I like to be part of a bigger machine and, and make things with other people. But holding yourself separate from your work, I find that hard to do sometimes uh, because I just get so wrapped up in what I'm doing. But I have seen like when I don't have that separation, what she described is like taking criticism, getting critical feedback that you take it to heart, or just like things aren't going your way at work. Being able to step away and say like, all right, that's not me. It was just today. It was just this moment and we get them next time. I love that phrase she used, decentering the self, which is, I think, what you were getting with in your initial comment there, Aaron, is you, th- you think about, you know, meditation is, oh, I'm doing this for myself, but really you're kind of doing it to reconnect with you as just one node in a much larger network of things. It actually, I mean, I know in my own experience, it certainly makes me a better person to be around. So even if it initially feels selfish, it's actually a tremendous gift to my family. Yeah, it's a fun conversation with Leslie. I, I'm a big fan of Headspace, and it's helped me a lot over the, the years. Reconsidering is created by Aaron Walter, Bob Baxley, and me, Meredith Black, with editing help from Brian Paik of Pacific Audio. Original music for the show was written and performed by Kimo Meraki. You'll find a full transcript of this episode and all the links mentioned at reconsidering.org. If you've enjoyed this episode, hit subscribe in your favorite podcast player to catch future episodes and discover the treasures of the Reconsidering Library. To support the show, we'd be ever so grateful if you'd leave a review on Apple Podcasts or Google Podcasts. Your review will help others discover the show. And life, like the seasons, is ever-changing, but satisfaction can be found every day when we tune in. Until next time.